Starbase Indie Podcast. I'm Lisa Meese, your host, and I'm here today with Dr. Bill Sullivan, who has spoken a couple of times at our event. Dr. Sullivan, why don't you start by telling us a little about yourself and a little about the work that you do? Uh, Sure, Lisa. First, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, I'm so happy that you decided to hail me uh, for this occasion. (laughs) Uh, I'm a professor at the IU School of Medicine. I've been there for about 20 years now. I'm a regular um, recently at Starbase Indy. I really love uh, the convention and love attending and presenting at this wonderful event. Um, And I'm looking forward to um, attending more in the future. Great. I just finished your book, which I bought a couple of years ago, but hadn't gotten all the way through until this week. So I have a bunch of questions for you. I notice a lot of popular culture references in your book. You're clearly a fan of all sorts of science fiction and other popular media. How have the ideas you encountered in science fiction influenced your work? Well, I'm glad you asked me about the book. It's called Please to Meet Me, Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces that Make Us Who We Are. And in a nutshell, it's basically all about the biology of human behavior, why we do the things we do. Um, which, you know, we sometimes question our actions at the end of the day or something silly that we said. And this book tries to educate people as to why we might do some strange things. And just as importantly, why others do strange things that we don't understand. The book hopefully will help to bridge that gap. Now, as you asked, I've been mixing my love of science fiction and pop culture with science communication for a long time now. And using pop culture and hot news items is a great opportunity to explain some science. And it's a formula that has worked remarkably well, not just for the book, but also a lot of uh, blog articles and other publications I've done along the way. I, I, I think most people drawn to science are fans of science fiction. And I imagine in most cases, science fiction draws people to science. So science fiction provides a hypothetical look at humanity's possible futures. They can be optimistic, like most Star Trek series, or have a dystopian feel, like uh, The Expanse. Either way, they showcase imaginative new technologies and wondrous advances that science can produce. And science fiction provides a safe venue for us to explore the human component that is inexorably linked to any scientific breakthrough. How are we gonna use this technology? Will it be used ethically? Will there be equal access to it? Good science fiction emphasizes that science is neither good or bad. It's just the process of reliable self-correcting process that gets us closer to the truth. But the important thing is how the results are used bleed into moral philosophy. And at least for me, that's where things get really interesting. My research is in biomedicine. Mm -hmm. So I'm most fascinated by science fiction that involves medical issues, new ways to screen or eliminate pathogens, for example. I especially like science fiction that does not cater to the mad scientist stereotype. Such a thing really doesn't exist and it taints the view of science and medicine in the public eye. So to see shows like Star Trek have science officers and doctors and engineers who are trusted heroes is very very inspiring to me. 
we do science to help people live happier and healthier lives. And it's nice to know those efforts are respected and appreciated. I like the point you make about science fiction really being about the people. I've been in several book clubs and of course the books I bring are science fiction books. And I've repeatedly had people say, this isn't science fiction, it's about the characters. All right, well, I don't know what you've been reading, but <laughs> it's, it's, it is, it's always about the people, that, that idea. And I think you're right that the um, mix of people who are interested in science and people who are interested in the ideas of science fiction, there's a lot of crossover. And the Starbase Indie, since we sort of rebranded half a decade ago, it's really been to capture the people who are at that crossover. So I like that. Um, that observation. So in your book, you quote Jean-Luc Picard talking about data and saying, if it feels awkward to be reminded that data is a machine, just remember that we are merely a different variety of machine, in our case, electrochemical in nature. So say more about how that statement is true. That's, that's from one of my favorite episodes called Data Lore. And the quote reminds us that we're kind of like a meat robot. And I use that analogy in the book somewhat humorously. Um, and the book makes a lengthy case for this argument, but I'll sum up the key points. So like an Android, we can be turned on and off with drugs, uh, anesthesia, for example. Hormones and medications can alter our behavior. Injury or tumors in the brain can fundamentally change who we are in terms of personality, our likes and dislikes, and what we remember. For millennia, it was thought that the human body was animated by a vital force, a spirit or soul of some kind. But slowly over the eons, science has revealed that our body is an exquisitely engineered piece of machinery sculpted by evolution to thrive as a social species. Uh, the mystery of what animates us was discovered in the late 1700s by Luigi Galvani. And he noticed that electrical currents caused the muscles in detached frog legs to move. Later studies showed that our brain uses electrochemical impulses to relay signals throughout the body. This is why electricity can be used to restart the heart. It's also why drugs like alcohol muck up the works and why caffeine can keep you awake. All of life is a complex biochemical reaction. So Picard was reminding everyone that we are in fact biological machines. But what I stress in the book, and this I think is really important, is that th this fact does not diminish our humanity. On the contrary, we're inhuman when we don't accept basic truths about how we function. Uh, it is through this knowledge that we're able to treat behavioral problems better. For example, using medication rather than exorcism or antibiotics instead of prayer. A lot of science fiction stories do make scientific claims and talk about how science works or how we think it will work in the future. So do you have some examples of shows or books that have gotten things really right or really wrong? Oh, there's, yeah, we could go on all day uh, about that topic. And I think if I recall correctly, several years ago, one of my 
presentations at Star Trek was um, looking at the biology um, of the Star Trek series and taking some examples of what's really true or what's really off base or what's kind of in the middle area there. It's one of the most fun presentations to do uh, because it's really close to my work. And as you uh, alluded to, a lot of science fiction technology eventually becomes realized in, in some forms. The handheld devices that were popularized on Star Trek resemble our iPads and tablets today. Uh, we have an entire culture's knowledge base in our pocket available wherever we go. We have video chats, uh, which was unimaginable about a decade or two ago. We ask our computer, Siri or Alexa, to shut off the lights or play us music. There are episodes of Star Trek where they can sequence and compare DNA very quickly. And we can do that today. The next generation episode, The Masterpiece Society, and films like Gattaca predict elements of genetic engineering and these so-called designer babies, which are becoming feasible ideas. Not quite there yet, but we can kind of see that on the horizon. And we're also getting spooky close to creating lifelike robots. Now, of course, science fiction gets a lot of things wrong as well. All of my physicist friends tell me that warp drive traveling faster than light just isn't possible given what we currently know. And sometimes uh, Star Trek shows a deep ignorance of biology. The Genesis episode in The Next Generation is possibly the worst offender in history. And I say this with all the love in the world for the show. <laughs> but on that episode, somehow a T-cell virus causes the crew to de-evolve into prehistoric creatures from their home worlds. And that's simply not possible. That's probably a good thing. <laughs> There's some things we don't want science to be able to do. And it's always interesting to see how different worlds solve this problem of I want to get to another planet in the space of this character's lifetime, which may be more science fiction than science fact. One of the things that you, going back to your book, one of the facts that you talk about in there that I find really fascinating is that, you know, we are not just machines or just organisms, but we're ecosystems. We have tens of thousands of bacteria contributing millions of genes into us. So what are some of the most surprising ways bacteria influences our behavior in our lives? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, this topic, our so-called microbiome, was featured heavily in Please to Meet Me. And it's very surprising to a lot of people who haven't um, heard about it or don't know much about the topic. Most people don't realize our body is teeming with trillions of bacteria, some yeasts, and many viruses. Most of these are in our intestine and they make all sorts of biochemicals as they grow and metabolize the food that we supply to them in our diet. It's been recently found that the chemicals the microbiome make can get into our bloodstream, even go to the brain, and affect our mood, our appetite, and behavior. The key tool that was developed by scientists that allowed us to study effects of the microbiome is called the germ-free mouse. These mice are born by C-section, and they live in sterile environments, so they have no microbes, no bacteria inside them or on their body, and they're not normal. 
They're scrawny, they're sickly, and they don't socialize properly like other mice do. Now, this tells us right off the bat that the microbiome is definitely linked to various aspects of behavior. And here's where it gets fascinating. Scientists can put intestinal microbes from another mouse or even a human being into those germ-free mice and see what happens. So when they put intestinal bacteria from a lean person into that germ-free mouse, it gains a normal amount of weight, but intestinal bacteria from an obese person causes the germ-free mouse to overeat and gain a lot of weight. Same thing with depression. Mice are normally happy social creatures, but put bacteria from a depressed person into the germ-free mouse and it starts to show symptoms of depression. It's no longer attracted to treats. It won't socialize with other mice and won't even try to swim if you drop it into a tub of water. All of this tells us that these microbes in our gut are an integral part of human activity. We need to eat properly and exercise to maintain a healthy collection of microbes in our gut. So your primary work as a scientist is with, uh, is it toxoplasma, am I saying that right? Yes, Toxoplasma gondii. Toxo, for short, is just okay. fine. So yeah, Toxoplasma is the name of the parasite. So how did you first get interested in this parasite? So, so Toxoplasma gondii is a, the single-celled parasite that we get from our cats or through contaminated food or water. Billions of people, up to one-third of the world's population, carry this parasite in their brain and don't even know it. It does not cause serious illness unless the person is severely immunocompromised. So the disease toxoplasmosis is usually seen during advanced HIV, AIDS, sometimes during cancer chemotherapy. It can also be passed across the placenta to a fetus, which can lead to devastating birth defects. And that's why pregnant women are told not to change the cat's litter box. That makes sense and also seems logical in other ways because, you know, let the pregnant woman build the human and you do the other chores. Um, so I read that this does things like increase your chance of traffic accidents or even of becoming an entrepreneur. It affects behavior in a variety of ways. So talk a little more about that. So yeah, this is quite fascinating. There's convincing studies out there that show toxoplasma, which can infect any animal, changes behavior of mice after it gets into their brain. Specifically, the parasite causes mice to become reckless and bold, which makes them easy prey for cats. That makes sense from an evolutionary perspective because the cat is where toxoplasma really wants to be. It's the only organism where it can complete the sexual stage of the life cycle. What about the billions of infected humans? Well, the jury's still out on that. But as you said, there's preliminary evidence that toxoplasma can predispose people to neurological problems. There's a strong correlation with schizophrenia in particular, as well as rage disorder and recklessness. 
which could explain the increased risk of being in a car accident or maybe even someone's tendency to get into business. There's a, there's a heightened predisposition to be an entrepreneur if you're infected with toxoplasma. Not that I've had cats my whole life and have started a couple of businesses or, you know, run a not-for-profit for a while. <laughs> um, no, I, that, 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 that doesn't make any connection in my life. Um, so let's see, let's go, let's go back to the book a little bit. Uh, in the Star Trek universe, the Federation often shows up to help other planets. Uh, based on what you say in the book, helping others seems to be something that humans are wired for. And this is a little bit at odds with some of the ideas that often show up in our narratives that survival of the fittest or, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, the pirate motto is take all you can, give nothing back. Can you say a little bit more about us being wired for helping? Sure. This is a fascinating topic as well. And there's been a great deal of work in recent years to combat the idea of selfish genes building purely selfish organisms. So you're probably familiar, Anne Rand, uh, she could not have been more wrong with her doctrine of selfishness. Science clearly shows that this is not how humans evolved. Our altruistic roots go way back and they're seen in other primates, which means that our sense of morality is not only biological in nature, but also ancient, millions of years old. Like other primates, humans have a dual capacity for selfishness and altruism. Like many mammals, we're an intensely social species. In fact, many scientists argue that the reason our brain got so big was because we have to navigate so many complex social relationships. Our brain evolved a skill that's called theory of mind, which is the ability to sense what another brain is thinking and feeling. When we see someone in pain, the pain centers in our brain also become activated, which literally allows us to feel their pain. Same is true when someone's happy. So theory of mind, in a nutshell, allows empathy to emerge in species that have that ability. Studies also show that when we do unselfish deeds, the pleasure response in our brain is activated suggesting that we're wired to help each other, even strangers, as you suggested. Similarly, when we're deprived of social interaction, the brain shrinks and we start to get delusional. And this is why solitary confinement is now considered a form of torture. Some anthropologists have argued that altruism is the secret to humanity's success. We've self-domesticated our species to the point where an individual member is not likely to survive on their own. As individuals, we really aren't that smart, but as a collective force with the ability to pass knowledge and culture down through the generations, we've been able to dominate the planet. You mentioned the mirror neurons and that ability to be empathetic. I love the, the quote, is it Margaret Mead, when asked what the first sign of civilization in, in ancient humans is that she talks about a broken leg bone, a broken and healed leg bone, because you can't survive if you can't move unless you've got people taking care of you. So that speaks into that. That's an excellent, excellent example. 
speaking of the mirror neurons, you make a note in the book that if people are reading, they often experience take, they have empathy for the characters. But if you read in a space with a mirror that you're looking at yourself, that changes your ability to do that. So this isn't in your book, but it's just a curiosity of mine as we now spend so much time on Zoom, as we're you know on Zoom right now, and I've got my face staring at me next to yours. Uh, does, is there any information or studies on how that changes dynamics? I think that's a great question. And honestly, I've not read about such studies, but I'm sure they're underway given how common uh, this mode of work and communication has become. It's probably a safe bet to focus on the person speaking rather than yourself, as studies do show that reading a person's eye and facial movements play crucial roles in having an effective dialogue. Theory of mind doesn't work well if we can't access that data. I wonder if that speaks to some of the exhaustion that comes from Zoom that, that has been documented, that it's more exhausting for a lot of people to do this over video than it is to do it in person. That's a good theory. I would not be surprised if that's true. So in the book, you talk about the ancient Egyptians, and they thought the purpose of the brain was to produce mucus based on its location and consistency. Um, so what are some of the other anatomical or genetic ideas that we used to believe, but that have been proved wrong by science over time? Oh, there's so many. That actually might make for a good book. Like, like I mentioned earlier, uh, there's no soul needed to animate our bodies. That's an idea that can be discarded. But also, we once thought um, that infectious diseases like the plague, malaria, tuberculosis were due to bad air. But thanks to Louis Pasteur in the mid-1800s, we know that they're due to microscopic germs, which is powerful knowledge because it puts us in position to do something about those terrible diseases. We also thought that people who were behaving erratically or speaking in tongues were possessed by demons. But we now know that bizarre behavior stems from neurological disease. And again, that puts us in a better position to treat it. We once thought that emotions were generated by the heart, but now we know that they're chemical processes that occur in the brain. Another favorite of mine is the discovery of sperm by Antony von Lowenhoek. This was in the late 1600s. People first thought sperm were parasites of the semen. We had no idea sperm had anything to do with making a baby until about 100 years later, when someone finally got the idea to try to fertilize, I think they were frog eggs, after filtering semen to get rid of the sperm. And once they did that, fertilization didn't work anymore. So voila, they're not parasites, extremely common parasites. They're actually needed, you know, to make the baby. Yeah, that, that would, I can see where they would come to that conclusion and that it is wrong. So your author page includes dozens of articles and publications like Psychology Today, Discover, and Scientists, bunches of them. What do you like about writing these short pieces as opposed to writing longer form of the, like your book? I, I feel very lucky. I write about whatever grabs my interest, whatever question I want answered. One day I might be writing about the latest study on the microbiome or toxoplasma, 
But other days I'm driven to look into why licorice killed a man because I saw it on the news or whether lice can bleed a person dry as one doctor claimed or whether certain things we see on TV shows have any basis in reality. One of my most popular articles was whether lying can make you throw up, which I wrote after seeing the movie Knives Out. Out, yeah. Yeah, since and the main character so, had that problem. Can it? Most doctors say no. <laughs> <laughs> they won't completely dismiss the possibility because there's lots of weird psychosomatic things that go on in psychology but the vast majority that I spoke to at least said that's, that's not a very likely condition. But lying is bad for your health, which was a kind of a tangent that I discovered while writing that article. There's some real psychological and physiological damage that are seen in, in people who chronically lie. Now, now, since all these topics are all over the map, it's good to have multiple venues, like you mentioned, uh, to pitch to. And the shorter articles are fun to do, obviously not as much work as a book because it's a highly focused question rather than an overarching thesis. Uh, It's like exploring a small island versus an entire solar system. So what are you working on now? Well, I take things as they come. Uh, I have several ideas for more articles, uh, including a myth that I recently learned about regarding the history of penicillin. And I've been pitching some ideas for a new book, but no publisher has said, make it so uh, just yet. So what's the myth about penicillin? It's, it's a little bit in the weeds, but I've been teaching for 20 years um, to medical students about the history of penicillin. And I usually introduce the subject of that antibiotic with the story of the first patient to receive penicillin. And he was a police officer in the UK named Al- Albert Alexander. And we were told, as is in in the scientific literature, medical journals, and many popular books, that he developed sepsis after scratching himself on the cheek while pruning rose bushes. A thorn lacerated his um, cheek, got infected, and he developed sepsis. Now, that was not unusual for the prebiotic, pre-antibiotic era, because people would die from very simple infections that we can treat easily today. Um, The tragic part about Albert Alexander is uh, they couldn't make enough penicillin at the time to save his life, but he did recover nicely, okay, for about 10 days um, before they ran out of drug. And that was what really sparked interest in going forward with penicillin. But here's the myth part. It wasn't a rose bush that gave him that injury. I was able to talk to his um, granddaughter who lives in California now and works as an artist. And his granddaughter told me, and I verified this with an Oxford historian, that he did not scratch himself on the cheek um, while pruning rose bushes. He was actually injured in a German bombing raid. The shrapnel that hit his police station um, hit him in the face and gave him other lacerations. And those cuts were what got infected and gave him sepsis. The granddaughter and her mother suspect that it was part of wartime propaganda. This was happening during World War II. Britain did not want to demoralize people 
that the German bombs were having such a devastating effect and actually killing people. So they made up this Rosebush story to help the uh, people in the UK maintain that stiff upper lip that, that Churchill was promoting. Oh, how interesting. So, but isn't penicillin the one that came from moldy bread? Is that part still true? Yeah, that, that part is true. Penicillin does come from a mold. And Alexander Fleming in the late 1920s was the first person to observe that on his Petri dishes, his, his bacteria plates, they accidentally got contaminated with that mold. And the bacterial colonies that were growing close to the mold were dying. So he was the first to hypothesize that this mold was making a substance, which we now call penicillin, that was actively killing those bacteria. Um, and he was right, but um, it didn't come about until uh, about 10 years later when chemists were finally able to revisit this story. It, was, it just sat in the medical journals for 10 years um, until the World War II really um, lit a fire under people to figure out what was going on because so many soldiers were dying from infections. As you said earlier, you've been a speaker at Starbase Indy several times. Tell me a little bit about why you like the event and the people you've met there. Oh, sure. Starbase is one of the highlights of my year. I've been attending for several years now and made many great friends. Uh, so it's always fun catching up with them every year. I see a great deal of optimism that Trek is known for among the participants at Starbase Indy, and that's always inspiring. It's wonderful to see such a diverse assortment of people come together, not only to share their love for Trek and all things science, uh, but to embody that hope and compassion that is needed to enrich humanity's chapter in the universe. And one of my favorite parts of the event is Drink with a Scientist, organized by Indiana Sciences, where attendees are free to join me and other scientists at the hotel bar, for a great freewheeling discussion about science. The questions we get are always amazing. And we often end up talking about the moral side of scientific advances, much like our favorite episodes of Trek. And I always learn something new at Starbase Indy. That's part of what we're doing there. And you always have fun too, right? Absolutely. That combination, that's, that's what we're doing. All right. So I think that about wraps up our conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, you're very welcome. And thanks again for having me on the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast and my conversation with Dr. Bill Sullivan. For more information about what's happening on the Starbase this year, find us at starbaseindie.org.